Hi, I'm Samir Kaji, and welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. On this week's episode, I'm excited to bring you my conversation with Carter Room, co-founder of M13, a unique venture capital firm that combines a fund, services platform, and a studio to support high potential early stage companies. M13 currently manages over 600 million in assets and has a portfolio that includes Ring, Daily Harvest, Tonal, Thrive Market, and many others. Before launching M13 as an institutional brand, Carter and his brother Courtney founded Vive Spirits, which became one of the fastest growing independent brands in the country before being acquired in 2016. This is a really interesting conversation for me as we were able to go really deep on how they think about systematically adding value to founders through their propulsion platform, as well as highlighting some of the key mistakes they made in the early days. So without any further ado, I'd love to bring you my conversation with Carter. Carter, it's so great to have you on the show. Thanks for uh, joining us today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. So I love your story for for a number of different reasons. You've wrote a book and you've been an entrepreneur and you've also been in iBanking before starting M13. But let's maybe take all of those different experiences and walk through exactly what precipitated the move to being a full-time investor and what particular insights did you and Courtney have in founding M13 when you did in 2015? Like you said, just to give a little background on our journey, you know, we started as investment bankers at Goldman. We left 15 years ago to start a company. And I was joking around with people now, if we were to leave Goldman, people would say, of course you are, you're going to go start something. People forget 15 years ago, people either thought they were, we were crazy or they honestly felt really badly for us. Like, wow, these guys are throwing away everything to go start a company. I think we were fortunate, you know, along our journey and, and given the success we were having with our company. We were just in all the right rooms, getting to meet all, all the best entrepreneurs. And so started to kind of build a very strong kind of angel track record, you know, seeding things like Ring and Bonobos and uh, FabFitFun and all kinds of other great companies. And one of the insights we had along the way was we thought we were better investors because we were operators and we thought we were better operators because we were investors. And really what that distills, what that distills back to is that we were seeing so many different ways of companies scaling. We were getting access to so much information and it was allowing us to be better at both. And then we sold our company in 2015 and said, look, we want to become full-time investors. We looked around and said, look, the whole world's being evolved and disrupted. We think venture needs to evolve. And as well, what are the trends that lead us to believe a new model is needed? Everything that we've done is very purposefully been built based on uh, where we invest. So we invest in what we call the horizontal layer of consumer technology. So we think to ourselves, what are consumers going to be doing 10 years into the future across sectors like healthcare, fintech, food, and real estate? And then we invest behind the technologies that, that power that change. So typically software companies, marketplaces, SaaS companies, things like that. And we kind of saw two trends that led us to believe the world of venture was shifting specifically in the, in the spaces that we played. One was the complete democratization of the ability to launch new companies. So, you know, now in every space we look at, there's 10 or 15 companies, they're well pedigreed, they're all well funding, they're all going after the same thing. And everyone always violently shakes their head yes when I say that, but people forget when we seated Ring Doorbell, it was that Jamie Siminoff was the only one to come up with the idea of a wireless doorbell. Now there's hundreds, if not probably thousands, or Bonobos, I mean, shoot. They were the only ones to sell pants online at a time. And now imagine how silly that is. So if you take that coupled with the idea that in our spaces, everyone can have this direct relationship with a consumer. Sometimes that's B2C, but sometimes that's also B2B2C. 
basically the, the expression we use in our book is that now for the first time, a 1% difference is now a thousand times better. And a stat that I love just because it's the easiest to quantify is this idea of uh, in D to C, a 1% difference in 40 e-commerce statistics is a 400% increase in sales, compound that over three years, and you're talking about a 5x difference in revenue. The winner goes on to being a unicorn, and the second place, right, still second quartile, ends up basically going out of business. And so we basically said, look, there's a fundamental shift happening in venture. How do we build a firm that's not designed to only pick the winners, which is sourcing, but how do we build a firm that's all around how do we make winners? And we said, how do we do it in an institutionalized and scalable way that acts as a flywheel where actually the bigger we become, the stronger we, 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 the model is. And the last thing that I'll say, and then I'll pause, is we take a lot of cues from other financial industries. So if you think about something like private equity, at one point it was around proprietary deal flow. And then that became very difficult. Then at one point it was around financial engineering. Then that became very difficult. And now when you look at it, all these big private equity firms like Bain Capital and others all have these very large operating groups because they realize the way you build better companies is you actually help them kind of execute better. And we just think the same fundamental shift is happening in venture. There's so many great companies, so many great ideas, but so many people going after it. And so we believe fundamentally that we built a platform around this propulsion platform that helps companies execute better and effectively gives them a better chance at success. There's a lot to unpack there. One thing in particular that I'd like to distill down further into is this notion of value add for early stage funds and what they actually provide portfolio companies. And of course, as we've seen the the world of technology grow, so have we seen the number of funders and capital has become this commodity for founders, especially when there's so many different options. At the same time, at the early stages, especially. Founders also face a lot of competition for other companies that are doing something similar. And having every type of competitive edge available or any resource available is paramount in the early days as you're building out product, as you're going into early growth. How do you think about the world of VC in terms of the type of value add you need to provide today? to be competitive and to really drive better outcomes for your founders? Yeah. So so we have 10 partners at the firm. Five of those are full-time investing partners, all with operating backgrounds. But five of those are these vertically focused propulsion partners that their job every single day is to wake up and, and help our portfolio companies execute better. And I think you saw some models a few years ago where platforms would try to add platform resources, and they do it across maybe one dimension or two dimensions. We fundamentally thought that, look, we need to help with all the dimensions. And so, you know, our pillars are brand, product, distribution, acquisition, operations, and talent. And we have a partner and a team. Uh, We actually have one and a half people on our propulsion team for every person on our investing team. So it shows the focus on building a firm around helping companies execute better. And the idea for us is we still back tremendous entrepreneurs, right? We back people like Padma Warrior and her concept, Fable. Um, she's on the board of Microsoft and Spotify. We back Brian Norgard, who's the former chief product officer of Tinder. It's not that the entrepreneurs that we are backing need help. It's that we can fill in the gaps with our very experienced operating team when they don't have that talent. So eventually you get to Series C and beyond and you build up these large teams. But 
when you're launching at Series A, you're probably not going to have somebody like Christine Choi, who's on our team, who's running brand and comms globally for Virgin and Richard Branson for a decade. Nor should you, quite honestly, right? It's, it's expensive and you don't need that resource full time. But the ability for Christine Choi to help a company to launch or Matt Hoffman, our partner of talent, you know, typically after you raise a bunch of money, the first thing you do is thinking about how to build great culture or what your key hires are or things like that. And so for us, we don't think it's one trick or two trick. We think it's across the entire spectrum. And it constantly is changing, right? When you launch, you need a brand and comms help. When then as you start to scale, you probably need some operational help. When you raise a new round, you need some kind of talent help. And so when we started, uh, we basically invested $5 million incrementally beyond our management fees to build this propulsion team. That's why the firm now has 30 people, two offices and 10 partners, because we had two insights. One is that we needed a team that sat across the entire spectrum because you're constantly needing different resources. And two, we believe kind of junior resources are commoditized. So we wanted people that were truly the best in what they did, right? And so, you know, we have partners that have all worked or led or started unicorn businesses because that's where we think there's a real point of differentiation to allow a Series A company to pick someone's brain that's been there and built, you know, Carl Alomar, our partner, was the founding CEO of DigitalOcean. That's now an $8 billion company. It's very rare that they get access to that. And therefore, you know, later, when you get to later stage, I still think we can be helpful, but it's marginal help. When you think about earlier stage, it's it's exponential help. And the last thing that I'll say is the way we think about startups is like shooting a rocket from Earth to the moon. If you change the course of the rocket one degree, after a mile, you're only 92 feet off course. But by the time you get to the moon, well, you never get to the moon because you're 4,169 miles off. And so if we can build a firm that's just trying to change the trajectories of these rocket ships, one or two or three degrees, you can fundamentally change the trajectory of these companies because they get up the J curve faster, they raise better follow-on capital, they're able to hire better people and kind of the, the flywheels then kick in. And what you're speaking speaking to is really the compounding effects of these small changes that can be made in the early days. Samir, do you know my favorite stat is actually this. Did you know if you get 1% better every day in 2021, do you know how many times better you are by the end of the year? 37 times better. Amazing, right? Just that compounding. Yeah, which is these marginal differences that can make the difference between not only a good and great company, but a, a good company and a massive outlier company that we we now see in certain cases. Now, you and I have spent a lot of time talking about the venture industry and how it's morphed and evolved over the really the last 10 years particularly. And you know, Andreessen came out in 2009 and their insight was that founders actually needed a, a lot of services that fundamentally they couldn't afford at the early stages. Now you have a lot of different firms emulating that and bringing on platform teams. Some of it is met by skepticism by both founders and LPs. The starting of a firm is much easier than it ever was. When you started and you had this insight of, let's actually bend the curve a little bit in terms of these small ex changes that could be exponential for these founders, was it because you see, saw a perceived or a real gap? Or was it because you felt that this was gonna provide a comparative edge in terms of actually sourcing and winning some of these deals? Yeah, I think you've obviously uh, looked at our materials, Samir, you're stealing my thunder, but I think it's exactly those two things, right? I think it's pretty well documented that in venture, there's no basically asset class where brand matters more than venture. The stat that I love, I think I was over about 20 or 25 years, is 
the difference between median and top quartile returns in private equity was pretty tight spread, 13 versus 18%. In venture, it was 15 versus 38%. So it's very well documented. The best firms get access to the best entrepreneurs and therefore get an outsized uh, share of the proceeds from all these incredible companies that are being built. And so I believe venture is getting more crowded by the day. It's pretty well documented, right, that it's only becoming more competitive. If you try to win only on price, I think it's a race to the bottom because when the world adjusts and valuations aren't so white hot, right, that just math doesn't make sense. And so I think every firm that's starting really needs a point of differentiation in order to just start by winning deals, right? And so one of the things that we're proudest of is we do an MPS survey with our founders and it's 82, right? And anything considered over 70 is world-class. That gets us excited to your point, Samir, is a little skeptical of the VC who says they'll be helpful, right? But what that's telling us is everything we told the entrepreneurs that we would be helpful on and value add on that we're actually living up to our end of the bargain. So I think it starts with having a point of differentiation, like you said, like Andreessen has done at the top of the funnel. But then I think it really, like in our case, we fundamentally fit, shift, believe we are shifting the J curve. And if we can do that, right, you actually don't need bigger exits to create outlier returns, you actually need better J curves, right? Two companies can exit. We have two companies in our portfolio. They're both going to exit around 1.3 billion. And we seeded both of them. One return is 21X and the other is 100X. That is a, a huge difference in our return. And that's only because those J curves are better because they got there faster and they use less capital. What does that mean? They basically just made fewer mistakes along the way. Uh, and we're able to get the J curve faster. So as you think about these different engagements that you've done, and I know NPS, I love the word NPS because it's something that we've used in the client service industry for years and years and years. And it's really tough to get actually over 70%. I don't know if you saw the in the banking world where I was, the average NPS score for a bank was about 16%. So <laughs> you can see the, uh, which is basically no one likes you. Now, as you look at some of the key insights that you've learned through really executing on this propulsion team and platform, have you found it to be more of a risk mitigation where the companies that you invest in just have a better shot of getting to the next level? Or is it truly accelerating and amplifying the actual return and the, the overall performance of the underlying companies? And it could be a combination of both, but where have you seen it most play a role in, in terms of your own fund. I think you hit the nail on the head once again. Uh, that's why you're good at what you do, Samir. But I think the way we talk about it is how do we mitigate risk and increase the likelihood and magnitude of success? And I think, like you said, it's harder to control the success because so many other factors need to come into play. Luck, timing, industry, kind of dynamics, things like that. But I think you can certainly control the risk a lot better, right? So if you think about one of the things we talk about is we built this tech platform and this data layer and this team to effectively save entrepreneurs time. If you can save them time, one of the ways we, we think about our platform is how do we do two things for entrepreneurs? Help them make better day-to-day -day decisions where the way we talk about it is no single decision moves the needle, but a lot of decisions like you talked about compounded over a lot of time moves the needle. And then how do we give companies unfair advantages that create that step change growth and allow that flywheel to go, right? That could be a key hire. It could be an incredible top tier investor. It could be a big media moment, whatever it is. And so the first, the first thing we always start with is saving entrepreneurs time when they're constantly making decisions on a day-to-day -day basis 
that compounds an incredible amount, right? And when you think about time, what's associated with time, it's capital, right? It's our capital or other VCs capital. So if you can just get companies to move faster, that's a huge win. And then we say, look, how do we help entrepreneurs make better decisions? But what we've actually found is what's more important than making good, better decisions is actually avoiding bad decisions. If you choose the wrong growth agency, if you make the wrong hire, you might not get to the next round, right? And when you look at I believe one of the biggest indicators of success is who gets the funding and who they get it from, right? So when you look at a Series A failure rate, it's somewhere around the 30s. Uh, and you might know these stats better. By Series B, it gets to about 10%, and then it kind of plateaus around that 10%. But if you get to that next round, especially if you get a top-tier investor, you significantly probability adjust the odds of a strong outcome. Because even the difference between a top-tier investor and a second-tier investor is a lot more people are willing to follow in a top-tier investor for the next round. And so these things have very dramatic effects. And obviously, we're living in a world, as you pointed out, the winner gets all the spoils, right? There might be two or three winners, but it's not a third, a third, a third. If there's three winners, it's 80% goes to the, the main winner, and then maybe, you know, 15% to the next winner, 5%. And so you really have to kind of get up that J curve. But for us, like I don't, we don't, as a firm, we don't fundamentally think VC has to be a riskier asset class when you talk about, which we might talk about things like portfolio construction. And then also we, we always obsess about risk and we're always trying to think about with our entrepreneurs is how do we mitigate risk? Because if you can do that, you just give yourself a better likelihood of being in a position where you can win and win big. Well, it's not very often on my podcast that we get to talk about risk mitigation, but it does highlight the fact that despite the main goal being achieving as much upside as possible in early stage venture, that it is as important in many cases to be able to mitigate those avoidable risks. The thing that I want to actually double click on since we've touched on it is the concept of NPS with founders. And I'm curious as to what your findings were as you polled your different founders in terms of what really moved the needle for them. Can you maybe give us the ranking of the top two or three things that drove the most value to the entrepreneurs that you work with? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great question. I think, you know, a few things that we pride ourselves on, and obviously a NPS score of 82 is tremendous, but what we get more excited about is the feedback, like you said, that ladders up to that, because the entrepreneurs are feeding us back what we designed the propulsion platform to do. And so one of the first things we always hear is, they're always being proactive and they're always thinking two steps ahead, right? So when we you know, uh, invest in a new company, we do an onboarding. We send a survey to the company to try to get into their, their heads to understand what's top of mind and everything like that. And then we do a bunch of internal processes to understand what we think should be top of mind, right? And the famous quote from the 1920s is, ask people what they thought they needed. They thought they needed faster horses, but it turns out they needed cars, right? We have all these experienced operators. So rather than reacting to an inexperienced entrepreneur, potentially that says, oh, I think I need this, we'll actually say, look, we've been here before. We've been here before on the good days and the bad days. We actually think you need to focus here or thinking like that. And so uh, like even when COVID happened, we effectively took every core position that we had. And on our propulsion team, we did our own SWOT analysis to say you know, what we thought about where they were when that black swan moment happened. We fed those back to each of those companies and said, hey, just for what it's worth, this is how we view where you guys are. Hey, you're in great shape. You have great runway. 
you know, you need to go into a defensive posture or for some companies, it was, this is your time to shine. Let's double down, split the aces and let's go for this type of thing. So I think the first thing is around being proactive, right? Like we don't worry, we don't have platform resources. We have operators that wake up every single day and think proactively in terms of how to help these companies execute better. One of the things we always hear is it feels like M13 is helping me double the size of my team. That means we're basically right giving them more resources compared to their peers at the same stage. Sometimes we we use at M13 a decentralized model with our with our propulsion partners. So we want every company to know every one of our partners because everyone's got a unique skill set, right? So you're going to be talking to Carl when you're scaling around operations, or I mentioned other people. And so sometimes it might be a quick 30-minute phone call to allow you to think better about a problem, but sometimes it might be a three-week project, right? Working with you for three weeks around a launch or a hiring roadmap or things like that. So I think it's that, that idea that we can allow companies to feel like they have more resources. Given how people-centric portfolio service teams are, how have you gone about building your team and ensuring that you're hiring people that share the ethos and value of the firm, drive the right type of value consistently to your founders? Are there things that you look for in particular? And conversely, are there certain non-negotiables that would immediately disqualify somebody from being an M13 portfolio services member? So, I mean, my brother and I have the ultimate luxury that this is our second act and we've had a great investing track record leading up to this and sold our company. And so what we talk about all the time is the ultimate luxury is getting to do what you want with who you want. So one of our guiding principles when we started M13 was we said at at any point in the future, the firm has to pass the airport test. And what I mean by that is, would you truly want to be stuck in an airport with this person for four or five hours? And a lot of companies don't pass the airport test. So that's totally fine, right? Our previous company didn't pass that test, but it wasn't designed to pass that test. For M13, uh, that was really important for us. Some of the softer side of things is, I mean, for us, is maybe cheesy as it sounds. We always start with, we just want good human beings, right? So mm-hmm. again, we want to be around other good human beings. The second thing is, we try to be a venture capital firm that leads with empathy, because I think that's a real point of differentiation in the sense that we all come from an operating background. And so we've been in, in those shoes. Obviously, we're looking for operators who can deal with kind of entrepreneurs with empathy. And then, to your point, Samir, earlier, we obsess about mitigating risk, right? And, and I think personally, hiring is just about the hardest thing that everyone needs to learn to do. It is really hard, and we all make a lot of mistakes. And hiring mistakes tend to be costly. The difference between having top tier and second tier talent is, is exponential. And so one is we, we track a lot of people that we just admire and respect and think highly of. There might not be an opportunity or a need today or tomorrow, but we track them. So Take Christine Choi, who's a partner at the firm. I had been an admirer and known her personally for 15 years and have been tracking until the right moment in time when she came on board two years ago. So a lot of it is, uh, especially at the senior ranks, just about every person we've known between five and 15 years, because that's a risk mitigating factor. We know them and we know them very well. And then I think that just very tactically, the two things that we do is we use a predictive uh, index test, right? So it's a test, right, that takes less than three minutes, but tells you how that person's going to show up in a work environment. Because the the thing that I think a lot of people fail to realize is it's always about the system and the athletes, right? So you hear Phil Jackson talking to use a sports analogy, say, oh, I brought on Derek Fisher because he'd be really good in the triangle offense, right? 
we know we have a certain approach and we know we have a certain system and we know the athletes that will be best suited for that system, right? And we're very honest that sometimes we come across someone that's an incredible talent and we just say, look, you're just not best suited for our system. Either you won't perform to your best abilities or you won't be personally fulfilled because, you know, you are a tremendous kind of person, but that, so we, we spend a lot of time doing tests like that. And then for me, it's boring, but I, we just try to over-index on spending time with people, right? Like, and we try to get them in different situations. If you, if you came in or maybe more aptly suited, I'd probably be coming to work for you, Samir. If I came in and met you in a conference room and we had a conversation, I'm going to have my button up and I'm going to be very button up and my answers are going to be crisp because I'm going to be in that mode. So like when we used to hire salespeople for our previous company, I would take them to a crowded restaurant where I knew it would be standing room only. I purposely wouldn't make a reservation and I'd go up there and play dumb and go, hey, oh my God, you're, you're packed. Like you don't have any tables. And I would immediately just pause. And that's when the interview started. I would let this salesperson see if they could build rapport with that hostess, see if they could think creatively like, oh, maybe we could just put a seat at the corner of the bar or things like that, because I want to get people in different environments. So we spend a lot of time with anyone that comes on to M13 and we try to do it in a lot of different dimensions and a lot of different environments, because I think that's how you get to know people best. I think it's really smart and probably underused to get people in different environments so that you can assess them across dimensions that you may not be able to and likely are not able to if you sat across from them in a boardroom for an hour or two. But the other thing that I'd like to maybe touch on is the entire team. As you think about constructing a team of individuals, what you're also doing is looking for ways to build a team that is greater than its sum of individual parts. And one way is to have some level of diversity that drives a maximum amount of diversity of thought. Are there things that you have done intentionally to create a team that truly brings this diversity of thought to the table? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, before we talk about diversity, I think diversity of thought is a really important thing to touch on. I talk about all the time, you know, we have a firm of 30 people and only one of those people have actually come from a VC, right? So part of our thesis was we wanted people that could think differently. We talk all the time around healthy tension. And what we mean by that is everyone shows up with different biases and prejudices and experiences, I mean, in a positive way, and everyone approaches that. And so one of the things that we have tried to maximize for is how do we build a firm built on the ability for people to share their opinions? How do we make sure that everyone comes at it with different vantage points? Because we think it leads us to better outcomes in the end, right? So even as we've designed the firm, we don't really know what goes on in a normal VC. I've never worked there and only one of 30 people have worked there. So we tend to go and ask our mentors, hey, like what's a normal IC look like on Silicon Valley? They tell us. And then we just start thinking about it with fresh perspectives and fresh vantage points and different biases based on all of our different experiences. And I think we always lead to a better place because typically the way that has been done in the past is not always the best way for the future. There's some things rooted in why it's always been done that way that are positive, but typically an evolution is best. So first, as a firm, we just think it's fundamentally good business, right? Three of our 10 uh, partners are females, and we have a lot of diversity across the organization, across, you know, kind of different dimensions. 
Um, and we've really tried to take a leadership role in ESG and diversity, just one as being kind of good citizens of the world, but truly we just believe it, it leads to better outcomes. We do a lot. Uh, one of the first things that we do for any new employee uh, is unconscious bias training. And we actually do it for our, uh, as part of our propulsion activities too, because we all have biases that are unconscious when we're hiring people. And so the first step is to be aware of those. And then we have a lot of tools in place from a tech stack perspective to try to remove those biases. And so I think it's part of that, but it's also just being very purposeful about it, right? I'm, I had a very proud moment recently. I was part of uh, First Round Capital's kind of blueprint mentorship program, an incredible program. And I was matched up with a African-American gentleman who played college football at Ohio State, worked in sports, but wanted to get to VC. And, you know, for somebody like that, VC can be very difficult to break into, but he was incredibly sharp and smart and had all the things that you would look for. But like you said, he works in sports. He's not around the right networks. His background isn't what people would be used to seeing in that. And uh, after the program, we continued to work together. And, you know, I was able to lean on a lot of people that to make sure he got a foot in the door to get interviews. And, we, you know, struck out a, a bunch of times. And then, but it, I kept telling him, we gotta, you gotta trust the process, right? We're getting closer to getting you with your foot in the door. And now he works at a top tier VC. Um, he has an incredible mentor who wants to make him one of the, the, the kind of the next generation of VCs. But a lot of people along the way have to do the right things to, in order for, to get somebody like that. And, and I, you know, I called him when he told me he got the job offer with tears in my eyes, because this is someone who might not have been given that chance, but obviously he should be given that chance. Again, incredibly talented, but it was that. So I think for us, it's just trying to be very purposeful about it. And I do think I'm very encouraged by kind of some of the changes that have happened in the industry. I also think even little things, like when you think about it on the funding side, we would never, ever, ever, ever invest in a company without meeting an entrepreneur in person. That changed in one week. We said, we will only invest in people we have never, ever, ever, ever met, but only met on Zoom, right? But what that is, is that's a democratization around letting the best entrepreneurs with the best ideas raise capital because it does it, it, it decreases the premium that someone needs to be in, in Silicon Valley or travel to Silicon Valley because of that. And so I think you're seeing just a ton of positive change on the entrepreneur side, on the investor side. And, and I think my hope is that everyone continues to keep it top of mind. Because again, it will just lead to better outcomes for everybody if we continue to be purposeful and thoughtful about it. A lot of what you just said is actually uh, toward an eye to the future and not actually looking at biases and patterns that have been created in the past. The world is far too dynamic and moves far too quickly and so many things have changed. As now you've run the firm for six years, where are some of those patterns that you had to unlearn? And that if you were to talk to an aspiring venture manager to really keep an eye out because I do think a lot of people tend to lean on things that were given to them as gospel, but may have been written 10 or 15 years ago. Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think the biggest shift in evolution for us was going from good angel or great angel investors, right? We seeded seven unicorns. We're in the series A of five others. I think we, we have a good eye for it. But we were angel investors, the shift from being angel investors to institutional investors, right? And so one of the challenges that I had to overcome when we um, launched our second fund with institutional capital was going, how do I have to think differently, right? So 
um, when we were just investing our own capital, there were just different constructs, different ways to generate returns. And so the hardest thing for when we launched Fund 2 is kind of going, gosh, I love this company. I would totally do it if I were still an angel investor, but this is why it doesn't make sense under a fund construct. And that, to be honest, was pretty frustrating in the early days because we'd built such a great track record. We were really good at what we were doing, and now we had to reprogram ourselves. And so that has probably solely been the biggest learning. You just have to think differently when you kind of institutionalize your capital and in a fund construct, um, how you think about kind of dispersion theories how you think about power law theories and so many different things. That was probably the biggest shift for us. If you were to look back now and um, consider some of the things that you might have done differently, were there some early mistakes that you can point to that really speak to this going from angel to managing third-party capital? Yeah. Oh, I mean, how much time do we have for this podcast? You want me to go through all the mistakes now? <laughs> but I think, look, of course, so you know, we're very transparent and very uh, reflective in the mirror always, but we always do it with an eye on how do we get better, right? So we have a relentless focus on incremental improvement. And all I tell my team is we have to win more days and win more battles than we lose. And if we do that, we're going to get to a great place, right? And so when people talk about failures, we took it. Yeah, there were things that we could have done better, but we immediately looked at it and said, what what can we do better? When I think about specifically things that we could have done better, I think there's plenty of them, but I might flip the question one way, which was, you know, one of the things I always tell entrepreneurs is you don't launch to scale, you launch to learn how to scale. And the best companies that we've seen get up the J curve, they're constantly creating experiments they're constantly laying breadcrumbs to try to learn and get insights be, that allow them to then scale exponentially. And to me, that's fundamentally the difference between companies that grow linearly and exponentially is they have an obsession with learning and insights that allow them to grow. And so, you know, when we started the firm, we spent about two and a half years tinkering with our model, perfecting it, learning, putting out breadcrumbs, having experiments to see what would work before taking institutionalized capital. And I think that was the best thing we ever did. We didn't just run out and raise capital. And that's allowed us, you know, I get a lot of people that say, wow, I just M13 the last few years, I see it everywhere or this or that or, or AUM. But it's really because we were slow, 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 steady, learned to learn a lot, made a lot of mistakes. And then we went into kind of exponential scaling mode. And so I think fundamentally, that's what I would recommend to everyone. You're going to make a ton of mistakes. You always have to respect the process. You know, there are good days and there are bad days, but I always tell my team, if we do the right things, over time, probability adjusted, we'll have good outcomes. Like I'll give you the analogy that I love. You know, we've all been at blackjack. We've been one seat over from a person. You know the odds in your head. It's a pretty simple little table. And, you know, the, the guy does the exact right thing next to you, the guy or the, or the woman. And then he busts and he goes, I knew I should have taken a hit. And I said, yeah, of course, you should have taken the hit. You have to take the hit because probability adjusted over long outcomes, you will always win more than you lose if you play the odds. You can try to do that. And so in the same way, we just always respect the process and always fundamentally believe if we do the right things today or tomorrow, it might not seem like we're going to get to those outcomes. But fundamentally, when you extrapolate them over time, we, we always do. I'm glad you brought up the blackjack reference. I actually use it a lot when I think about investing in funds and looking at funds from the lens of investability in the in the sense that if you go to Las Vegas and let's say you're playing blackjack, 
the house always has positive odds. I mean, even if you know all, you know how to play by the book, you know when to split, you know when to double, you know when not to hit, the house will win and your chance of winning is like 46.2%. And what you're always looking to do as an investor is find something that's systematic that allows you to better those odds of your win probability. And so you've probably seen the MIT movie around the kids going and counting cards. And what they've done is they haven't guaranteed success, but they've created a process for themselves that increased the probability of success of actually winning in any given sitting. And so I'm a big proponent of processes that will then lead to repeatable outcomes. And there's a lot that goes into that, right? It's not just, hey, we are going to help companies in this way. But it's also some of the second order decisions you make in terms of portfolio construction. And I think that a lot of people trip up on portfolio construction in the early days, optimizing for when do you back up the truck for your winners? How do you actually retain pro rata? And then ultimately, when do you go outside of your rough group of uh, parameters, which could be around ownership or check size? Tell us a little bit about the toughest things to manage when you look at second order decisions and really look at it through the spectrum of follow on decisions, as well as when do you kind of flex your discipline of, hey, I really love an entrepreneur and I'm going to do something I normally don't do. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head just to take what you said is the, the one thing that one of my mentors, Juan Salvatore, who's now partner at Valor, stressed to me right before we were raising our, our second fund is he said, Carter, you're smart. I, I think he was obviously just trying to be nice. He said, you have a great model. But just remember, the the first thing is you have to have investors trust you, right? Great firms are built on trust. And so that really stuck with me. And so we've obviously, you know, one of the reasons we raised this $15 million of operating capital is we wanted to build an institutionalized firm built on trust, right? It's not lost on us that any LP that gives us money has has worked very hard to get that money. And like what you said, is we we obsess, obsess, obsess around processes because we go, look, we have one fund that was top to SL. Now we have two funds that are top to SL. That increases your odds a little bit on the next fund. But really what increases your odds as you continue on is do you have these systems, tools, and processes to make these things kind of uh, repeatable? So I think that's a, a really great point and something that uh, that I always stress to people. You know, one of the things we did when we first started our first institutionalized firm, our fund, was we did an exercise called 80-20-0. And we did it across a bunch of different dimensions. And we, what we were trying to distill down was, what do we want to do 80% of the time? And the dimensions were everything from sectors to type of entrepreneurs, right? All the different criteria that we look for in companies. What's going to be the exception to the rule where we just something tells us, right, Malcolm Gladwell, Blink style, that something tells us in our gut that we should make an exception here. And then what are we going to do never any any of the time, right, whether that's the size of check or whether that's a sector we don't feel comfortable playing in. And the reason we did that exercise was we really wanted to codify it because I think the best venture managers, they have incredible amounts of discipline and they don't waver from that unless it's the exception. The less than world-class VCs, their exceptions become the rule way too often, and then everything kind of breaks down very quickly. So that was the exercise that we did. When we think about portfolio construction, to your point, we think about two 
factors that we believe in that are intention. One is it's very well documented. You have to have enough bets on the table, right? You need dispersion of investments to give yourself the highest probability that you find some winners in there. But then it's all about power law. Then you obviously, when you look at the top performing VCs, it's always that they had a few positions that basically returned the fund kind of multiple times over. And so we we basically have a bucket we call discovery checks where we're writing smaller checks earlier than we typically write larger checks, so seed. Then we have about 20 core positions. And then we actually have a very high reserve um, ratio. We, we keep 50% of the fund as reserves because really when you want to get to power law, it's all about um, how do we find those winners and like you said, back up the Brinks truck on them. And one of the reasons why we love having our propulsion team is the best VCs, not only do they pick winners, they own a lot of them. And the reason they own a lot of them is they got conviction one step faster than the rest of the market. And so in a typical VC model, I give you money and you're my point of contact. And that's kind of my window into what you're building. In our world, right, at any moment in time, our data teams talking to the data team, our talent teams talking to the talent team, we have multiple windows into every company. And so there's probably been five or six companies in our portfolio where we got conviction between rounds and we said, gosh, they're, we're looking at their data. It's just incredible. They have a tiger by its tail. And we immediately come back to the front door and say, we want to own more of this company. How do we do it? And that's typically bridge rounds. We've done a lot of secondary transactions, right? Because we have asymmetrical access to information versus our favorite person to go talk to is a co-founder who started with the business but didn't continue on with the business. He thinks he's getting a great deal. We think we're getting a great deal. That's because we're seeing different data than he is. And then I think for us, really, anytime we use our capital, we ask ourselves with a with kind of a pro rata or follow-on situation, we ask ourselves two questions. Regardless of what we've done in the past, is there asymmetrical risk reward at this moment in time at this company? So that's the first question. It doesn't matter for us what we've done previously. It's at this moment in time, what does this J-curve look like? And then two, is this a better use of capital based on what we think the J-curve is from here versus any other company in our portfolio today or companies that we don't know that are probably going to get up the J-curve in, in the future? That's how we think about it because there is a real opportunity cost of capital, right? Every dollar we do as a pro rata is a dollar we don't get to put into another company. And so to me, that's one of the biggest fallacies in venture. Everyone just always wants to take their pro rata. But again, they're not assessing what does the curve look like from there for that independent decision. It's a great topic. I feel like we can actually spend hours thinking about this aspect of portfolio construction and making these decisions. The word asymmetry is actually pretty uh, important here because you have created a platform where you, you get to see a lot more than a lot of more passive investors get to see. And I do think the world is is such that if you can form that asymmetric informational edge, you know, making those second order decisions is so much easier and it's it's so much more methodical in how you go about it. So this is great. I, I feel like we, we're going to have to do a part two. There's so many other things that I wanted to cover with you. But in the interest of time, I actually want to move to our heat check segment where I ask you three questions in rapid succession. The first is I look at your career in the firm and it's 
very non-consensus in a lot of different ways. And maybe it's cliche to say non-consensus, but nonetheless, I'm going to ask the question, what is the most non-consensus view you hold most strongly about venture? For us right now, at this moment in time, it's at times when we're willing to pay high prices to get into a company because we believe there are fundamental flywheels and we believe the next kind of iteration of companies is going to grow faster and be bigger than ever before because we are convinced there's a playbook for that across the venture community, the talent community, and kind of the, the operational playbook. And the next question I have is really around people. You talk about people all the time. You've been surrounded by some amazing people. Who has been most impactive in your career and what's the best piece of advice they've provided you? Uh, we're, we're very lucky. We have incredible LPs and people in our ecosystem, but this one's easy for me. Uh, it's my dad. And he has always told me growing up, uh, make sure you ever always leave everything better than you found it. And so that's how I try to go through life. Yeah. Well, it's, it's great that you said your dad. It's, it's a similar for me. Uh, my dad wasn't actually an entrepreneur in, in real estate, and he's guided me as well as anybody. Parents are so critical in terms of us achieving the level of success that we've been fortunate to have. So the last question then I have is really around the entrepreneur or the investment that has been most instructive in defining what type of investor you've become? It's not one name. It's actually seeing the data from all of them, right? Like to me, again, I try to treat my brain like the Facebook algorithm. Uh, I say that humbly. The Facebook algorithm has, is way stronger. But I try to, I always have loosely, uh, loosely held beliefs that I hold strongly effectively. So I try to take in as much data in my brain and then kind of run pattern recognition on them. And so for me, we've backed a tremendous amount of names, but it's always picking up little data points and little signals from all these different investments. And together, that's what makes it so powerful when you pick up the patterns in all of them. That's great. Well, this has been a ton of fun. You know, as I mentioned earlier, we should definitely do part two and, and unpack some of the things, including your first fundraise, which always is a, a really interesting story <laughs> for everybody. But uh, I want to thank you again for uh, being on the show and congrats on all the success thus far. Awesome. Thanks again for having me. Super appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Carter. To learn more about him or M13, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com for detailed notes on the show, as well as my ongoing commentary on the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.